Blog Talk Radio. Satellites in the skies broadcasting live 
a very intense skill, a very intense ability. And no matter what your shooting level, no matter what your shooting experience, everyone who comes to an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship event is going to get their money's worth. I don't care whether you just are unwrapping your rifle from Academy or Walmart or from the pawn shop where you picked it up, or if you are a competition shooter. When you come to an Appleseed, you're going to get you're going to get your money's worth. You're going to learn a lot of stuff that maybe you didn't know. You're going to learn a lot of stuff correctly. And then you're going to hear about the history of America. You're going to hear about the events that occurred on April 19, 1775. And you're going to hear about the players, who was involved, why they were there, what they did, and... Uh, and there's going to be a lot of stuff that perhaps you didn't know. And you're going to come away from the program from the weekend a better person, more informed. You're going to set yourself a goal of improving your rifle marksmanship. You're going to meet or exceed that goal. And then the natural next question in your mind is going to be, what next? What can I do next to improve myself, my family, my community, my state, my nation? And that's the whole purpose of our program. That's the whole purpose of what we do. <clears throat> All right, so you want to figure out how to get to one. All right, go to rwva.org. That's our homepage. On the homepage, look at the list of tabs going across the top. Second one from the left says Appleseed. Put your cursor on that. You'll get a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, select Schedule. Once you click on that, you'll come to a page that uh, has a picture of the United States on it. Put your cursor on the state where you want to attend the Appleseed event. Click on that, and you'll get a listing of the events in that state. If you want to see all the events going on across the nation, there's a hot link embedded in the text above the map. Click on that, and then select the event that you would like to attend. Find the date and the location. Click on that, and then you'll get two other hot links uh, on that line. One will say information, and that is the event information page. I'll tell you where the event is occurring, uh, who's running it, directions on how to get there, contact information, etc. The next link says register. This is for you to pre-register for the event. So many times people, they have uh, a, whole, a whole long cape that they drag behind them, and embedded in that cape are thousands of little plaques saying, I wish I would have done this. I wish I could have done this. I wish I, I meant to do this. I should have done this. And you drag that behind you your whole life. Don't put this on that cape. Don't put this into the baggage that you drag behind you. Make a decision to do this. Set yourself a goal of attending an event, and then do it pre-register for the event. That helps you and it helps us. It ensures you have a place on the line and lets us know you're coming. And uh, we've got thousands of people that we have to send here and there and airline tickets and hotel reservations and rental cars and porta potties and boxes of targets and uh, on and on. And the way we do this is by knowing how many people are going to come to an event. So, Check out the information page, then check out the pre-register and pre-register, all right? <clears throat> Don't let this pass you by. Don't let this uh, 
escape you and become a, another of the I should have, I would have, I meant to, etc. <clears throat> All right. Uh, in just a few minutes, we'll have uh, Dr. David Hackett Fisher, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Washington's Crossing, will be our guest on the show. Now, you guys know Dr. Fisher from either listening to him on the show here before because he's come on to discuss his other book, and I say his other one, there's many other one books. He's a fantastic author. But he's come on to discuss the book that we currently use as a uh, as the unofficial Appleseed history textbook, and that's Paul Revere's Ride. <clears throat> uh, he'll be on to discuss Washington's Crossing, and it's this time of year that it occurred. And... Uh, Washington's Crossing has always been one of my favorite books of Dr. Fisher's. And the battles of Trenton and Princeton and the history behind them have been, uh, I think, some of the most interesting and the most important battles that were fought in the American Revolutionary War. And we'll discuss all that in just a minute when he comes on. Uh, All right. I see uh, some of the folks say the volume is low. Is everybody else uh, hearing me okay? I'm not sure that I can do anything about the volume. I don't think that they'll they allow me any kind of uh, any kind of uh, tweaking of it. I'll just try to talk louder. Uh, now, in the first few minutes of the show, uh, we always have you guys. Uh, we always allow you to call in and tell your local crews thanks. And then we're going to do that again today. So you guys got about uh, ten minutes before Dr. Fisher calls in, and uh, and. You can call in to tell your local crews thanks. And uh, I want to thank all of the folks who uh, sent me well wishes. Uh, I got busted up this week. I got uh, uh, I got busted up pretty good. I'll just leave it at that. And uh, and a lot of folks, uh, it surprised me, the number of folks that, that called or emailed with well wishes. And I want to tell them thank you very much. I'm going to try I appreciate that, all the offers uh, to help out and stuff. I'm always experimenting with uh, with gravity and uh, and uh, blunt force trauma and stuff like that. So <clears throat> this was another one of those episodes. Uh, but I want to thank those folks, and I want to thank the call screener. You guys know uh, the call screener has been with me now uh, for a long time. I mean, it would be very hard for me to do the show without him, and uh, he's always there to uh, catch any glitches that I make, to make sure that the folks who uh, uh, call in get put into the queue, that uh, we stay on track here for time, etc. And uh, that is, I won't tell you his, uh, his name, but his initials are SD from New Mexico. So uh, you guys, uh, I'm sure, probably know who I'm talking about. And uh, I want to thank him for what he has done for me for the program, and of course, that's not all he does. You know, he's out there every day helping out uh, uh, with our troops, and he has done many varied things, and I'm not going to go into it because uh, if I told you all the things that he'd done, then uh, he would probably have to track each one of you down and uh, silence you. But uh, I will tell you that one of his last projects uh, included, well, here's all I can say about this. You remember the movie uh, The Big Red One? It's one of my favorite movies. It uh, follows the adventures of the uh, uh, First Division in Europe. Uh, anyway, there's a section in there 
where uh, where they have uh, I'm almost up, the name is escaping. Anyway, he's he's dressed in a full Arab costume after he gets out of the hospital in Tunisia. Anyway, you can envision uh, SD wearing that uh, full costume, the full uh, Arabic costume, and uh, that'll give you a hint as to what he's been doing uh, with our American troops uh, in the last couple of years. And I want to thank him so much for for being there with me every week. You know, we've been doing this for many years now, and uh, and I'm not the only one that uh, is sitting here uh, glued to uh, a telephone and a computer uh, every week. SD's there with me. So thanks to him. Thanks to the folks in New Mexico. Thanks to uh, Jimmy and to the Christmas for Our Troops folks who uh, I believe uh, – almost 2,700 packages now out to the troops in Afghanistan. And if you want to find out more about uh, what they have been doing or if you want to help them, you can go to christmasforourtroops.com and uh, and you can become a sponsor. You can donate uh, an APO address for them to send uh, to send a gift package to, etc. They've sent out the probably the best gift packages sent to any American troops anywhere uh, overseas the last couple of years, and they do it uh, consistently with a smile on their face. And it's not just Jimmy alone in a warehouse doing it. He's got, uh, oh, he's got several hundred folks uh, that he told me that are helping out. But they've been doing a great job. And you can read letters from the troops who have received these packages <clears throat> uh, from uh, the folks in West Texas and uh, uh, New Mexico and, uh, and, and give him your thanks, all right? Uh, we'll have uh, next week, we'll have Fred on to, uh, to talk about Appleseed in 2012, all right? There's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, in the program, and who better to answer your questions about it than Fred himself, so he'll be here ready to do that. So put that on your calendars. That'll be next week, 7 uh, p.m. Central, and uh, the boss will come on and talk about Appleseed in 2012, and not just in 2012. There are a lot of plans that reach further than that, and uh, I think that you want to hear about some of these because uh, it's getting more and more exciting uh, as far as what we're doing. Our plans are getting bigger. And uh, <clears throat> so make sure that you put down your schedule to call it, to uh, tune in this next uh, Thursday and listen to the boss. Uh, I'll put that show up on the forum. I'll put the link to that show up on the forum. And then in the next coming weeks, we're going to have uh, Senator Tomes from Indiana. He'll be on the show to talk about uh, about his last, uh, the last year, about 2011, him being the senator there. And uh, he's been on the show several times. We'll have Chris Knox uh, from the uh, Knox Report uh, coming on to talk. We'll also have uh, – uh, we may possibly have some of the candidates 
for President of the United States coming on the show. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a work in progress. We'll have uh, Trey Tuggle, who is running the NRA, their tactical rifle program. He's going to come on the show in, uh, uh, in maybe as early as in three weeks to talk about the NRA's uh, tactical rifle program. You know, he's developed a uh, – Mr. Tuggle and I have been talking for quite a while now, and, uh, and out of those discussions have come uh, a lot of different things on both sides. And uh, he developed a program for NRA and a new rifle match. And uh, it is, it's not for the, uh, for the folks uh, who make their, spend all their time doing competitive rifle shooting. It's for the folks who just uh, attended their first apple feed last weekend. Uh, now they're ready for the NRA National Defense Match. All right? So he'll be coming on to talk about that. <clears throat> uh, also, <clears throat> uh, I just wanted to give you guys a quick heads up that uh, you heard the program last week with uh, Cheyenne Dillenberger from Raw TV. And uh, uh, Ms. Dillenberger has spoken to me since then about uh, some ideas she has and it seems that a lot of folks uh, may have emailed her, and a lot of the talk was about Appleseed, about how much Appleseed had changed these people's lives. And so it, uh, it, it may very well be uh, a possibility that the uh, Wall Television Company, who uh, put out uh, – Gold Rush and uh, Locked Up Abroad and several other shows uh, maybe consider, uh, well, I'll tell you this, they are considering uh, developing a program based uh, on following Appleseed. So I'll let you know how that goes as it progresses. We'll know more than in a week or so. And... Uh, uh, and that's all I have for now. I can see now that... Uh, that uh, the call screener has put up that Dr. Fisher is ready to go, and if he's ready, I'm ready. So uh, without further ado, uh, Dr. Fisher, welcome to the Rifleman Radio Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's, it's our pleasure. If you knew how many people were, uh, were tuning in now, because I'm sure you – I've told you before, but I'm sure you don't know that, uh, that there are tons of folks – who are willing to hang on your every word because uh, the book that you wrote, and I told you this last time you were on the show, the Paul Revere's Ride, is our unofficial history textbook. Well, it's actually our official history textbook, and uh, and you don't have to worry because that that story is being told by literally thousands of people across the nation every year, straight out of your book, and uh, we want to thank you so much. For, for writing that book, and we're excited about listening to you tonight. Welcome to the show. Thank you again. Let me add one one personal word to 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 every every listener out there. I'm a teacher who is taught by his students, and also an author who learns from his readers. 
And so let me urge any of you who've been reading uh, my work, uh, drop me a line, uh, send me an email. Uh, I'd really like very much to hear from you. And, uh, and, and, and tell me what you think and what you know, uh, and we can exchange some, some ideas. Well, excellent. We'll get you to give out that email in just a little while. Uh, I want to say that I'm, I'm glad that you are feeling better. Uh, I told the folks, uh, I guess a couple of months ago that I spoke to you and that you were under the weather, but you've made a 100% comeback, and uh, you are uh, you're in even better shape than before. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, still teaching, and tonight uh, what we'd like to do is to have you talk about your Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The uh, Washington's Crossing, because I, I've had me, to do that. Let me just break in to say that I was done in by a deer tick. Uh, it, 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 it's a disease similar to a Lyme disease, but it's called uh, Nantucket fever or babesiosis, and. Uh, my guess is of the, of the, so many of, of, of members of your organization spend a lot of their time out, out of doors and learn from my example. <laughs> right, right. And, and I don't think people understand how, how serious that is, how serious. And it's not, there's not just Lyme disease, which, by the way, is a permanent forever disease. You can get it into remission, but you can't kill it. Uh, but there are other diseases that ticks. Well, any parasite will carry, but ticks will carry. So please, uh, while you guys are out setting up the ranges and stuff like that, make sure that you pay attention to this during tick season because uh, tens of thousands of folks every year are afflicted by this. And uh, I believe, Dr. Fisher, you were you were teetering right on the knife's edge for a while, weren't you? I, I was. It was. I was on Mount Desert Island in Maine, and... Uh... Nantucket fever is not easy to diagnose on a, on another island to the north. So it took a, took a little while to to, uh, to find the cause. But anyway, um, uh, it can be fixed. And and uh, uh, but the best remedy is to check whenever you're in in, in deer country. Uh, 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 check yourself and uh, catch the problem before it grows. Right. I uh, I've got an old sock filled with sulfur. And uh, I douse my my legs with that before I go out, and then uh, and then I check myself constantly because you know we yep, have the problem think... here. We uh, all right. So for the last couple of weeks, I've been talking to the listeners about the battles of Trenton and Princeton, and uh, for me, Doctor Fisher, this is uh, to me it's the absolutely the the most exciting, the most important event in the American Revolutionary War. And I've told the listeners this many times, and I tell folks at Appleseed that every time our nation has been in peril, that it has not been, uh, every time our, um, America has, has balanced itself on the knife edge, there have not been uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of people who helped to push it back into safety. Uh, they, every single time it has been rescued by just a tiny handful of people. And that's what happened at the birth of our nation at, uh, uh, in the, the winter of 1776. We were, the nation was in peril, and it seemed, as if, it seemed as if we were done and through, and yet we weren't. And because of the Battle of Trenton and, uh, and Princeton and the Forge War, which I, I've asked you to speak about too, that it changed the whole course of the war. Can you tell us about... Uh, 
the uh, and well actually the the forge war is actually part of what led to the success of the first battle of Trenton, right? Well, yeah, I think that's right. It was not a single battle or two or three battles. There were actually two battles of, of Trenton and then one at Princeton, but there were many engagements. This was a campaign, and it uh, started in, uh, in in early December and went on uh, until the spring. Uh, there were, I can identify at least uh, more than 100 uh, engagements and about 30 of them for which we have casualty reports. And, and that's what made the difference. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a moment when we won the revolution, but it was a moment when we could have lost it. Uh, and uh, in, that, in, in that sense, I think it, 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 was a, it was truly a pivotal moment. Right. And, and when I look at it, when you look at the, the events, because, it, you know, you, first of all, you have the folks saying, well, the reason that they won at the First Battle of Trenton is because the Hessians were all drunk. They were all celebrating. They were all drunk. And, and they just walked over them because they were all still in bed and they had hangovers, etc. And from, from every account that I can read, that was not the case. There's not one single bit of evidence that would lead anybody to believe that, that the folks had been drunk. As a matter of fact, because of the continuous pressure of the forage wars, of the, of the continued engagements, the men were, it was actually the opposite. The men were actually under a constant strain of preparing for battle. They, they weren't even allowed usually to take off their clothes to go to sleep because of the danger of attack. That's correct. Uh, and, uh, the uh, Hessians had, were attacked uh, almost every day before Christmas, uh, before, the, before Washington crossed the Delaware. They, they were constantly on the alert. They, uh, uh, One-third of the garrison uh, was kept under arms uh, uh, at, at all times. And uh, we not only have no evidence that they were drunk, but we have positive evidence that they were sober. Uh, and it was their enemies, uh, the American troops, who testified to that. To that fact, and I've got that evidence in my in my book. The the Hessians have had a bad rap, and they got it because the British were trying to explain to their superiors how this disaster happened, and they blamed it all on the Hessians. Uh, And that's how that legend of the drunken Hessians got started. It it grew out of the the British camp. Well, let's set the battle up real quick. First of all, the going into the winter of 1776, the the Continental troops, the American militia uh, and the Continental Army, uh, they, were, they were reeling. They had just experienced quite a few, uh, quite a few defeats, actually. Uh, they had lost Fort Lee, Fort Washington. They'd been driven out of New Jersey. And, yes. and it looked, for all intents and purposes, this may be the, the end of the American Revolutionary War. Matter of fact, I believe Washington even wrote a private letter to his cousin that said that he, even he believed that the game was almost up. Yes, and uh, what, what, ha- what had happened was that uh, the fighting around New York was not a single battle, but it was another campaign. And in the course of that campaign, from the summer through November of 1776, Washington lost 90% of his army. Uh, the numbers went from 30,000 down to 3,000 uh, troops. And he had a lot of other troubles as, as well. The, 
the supply system wasn't working. Intelligence broke down. Uh, there was uh, there was bad there were bad relations between the army and the Congress, uh, and uh, all those things had to be dealt with at the same time. And what was amazing was that Washington, and not Washington alone, what was extraordinary was that he found a way of leading other people, uh, bringing them together, and they began to solve these problems one by one. Uh, the, uh, they had actually the Americans still had more troops in the field, but instead of being in one army com- com- uh, commanded by Washington, uh, there were 12 American armies. So they were scattered all over the place. And what the first task that Washington had was to try to bring them together. And he began to have some success at that. And then also uh, he sent General Greene to meet with the uh, leaders of the Continental Congress. And they worked out a deal. The Congress had been micromanaging the war, and it hadn't worked well. And so they, they agreed that, that uh, the generals could, could direct the war, but they would be responsible to the Congress for oversight. And it was a very difficult uh, way to – a very difficult compromise, but they made it work, and it's still the basis of the American system that way. That happened on the 27th of December in 1776, just, uh, just, uh, just at the same time that they were uh, uh, going across the Delaware. Right, and the, the also at the same time, you have the, uh, the folks in New Jersey – who feel they, the uh, Continental Army and the militia has been driven out, they feel like they're exposed. And uh, at the same time, I believe, the Howe brothers uh, issued the, uh, the, uh, the letter to, for the folks to uh, oh, I'm swear an oath. Or, yes, yes, yeah, they, they could they, read they their to... oath to England, and then they would be okay. And then yes. you have the occupation. Uh, of the New Jersey by the British regulars and the Hessian troops. Now, the problem with that is that with any any uh, uh, any number of troops that are occupying uh, a land, is you 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 immediately get troubles. And they were pillaging and raping and and with the Hessians, the Hessians couldn't tell a loyal from a rebel. They were de- dosing it out to everybody. This started to change the attitude of the folks in New Jersey. And then I believe uh, uh, he was being, Washington was being, uh, many folks were pleading with him to do something, do something. Anything was better than nothing. And even uh, Joseph Reed wrote a letter to him that I believe he received on the 23rd of December that said, look, you've got to do something. Anything is better than nothing because even if you fight a battle and lose, uh, it shows that we're still in the game because right now it looks like we're out of the game. It looks like it's all yes, over. I, I think that's exactly right. And uh, in, in November, the Howe brothers, that is William Howe, who uh, was the general in command of the army, and and uh, and Richard Howe, who was in command of the British the Royal Navy in, in American waters, uh, had 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 three great successes. They'd gotten control of a large part of three of what they call still called the colonies. That is. Rhode Island, New York, and and a large part of New Jersey, and um, that's when people began to think that the momentum was very much on the British, uh, on the British side, and thousands of people in New Jersey took that oath of allegiance uh, to the uh, to to, uh, to George the Third. Many of them had taken an oath to support Congress uh, not very long before, 
And then the Howells had another problem. They were at the end of a 3,000-mile supply line, and uh, they were short of everything, particularly food. So they ordered their men to, to be distributed broadly in small uh, units scattered through New Jersey so they could forage, as uh, it was said in the Civil War, to forage liberally on the countryside. And did they ever? And uh, that's when uh, – Foraging led to theft and theft uh, to violence and violence to murder and rape. And uh, the people of New Jersey who had been moving toward the British side now began to turn against their conquerors. And uh, Washington had done something else. He'd organized a new intelligence system. Uh, He ordered all of his officers, his general officers, to run their own agents. And they began to report what was happening in New Jersey. Uh, And when that information came in to Washington and his councils of war, he and his uh, officers began to discover an opportunity in New Jersey, and that's what grew into the the campaign. Right. And I don't think that a lot of people understand that uh, uh, because it's not commented on, because because there's not a whole lot of information about it, but throughout throughout the whole American Revolutionary War, uh, General Washington was uh, well. I've read that he was uh, obsessed with gathering intelligence and trying to set up intelligence networks. And you and I talked about this the other day about how uh, about his particular method of it. A lot of the British regulars, I mean the the off the uh, commanding generals in the British side. Number one, they they didn't work hard to get intelligence, and number two, their intelligence programs that they set up were. Uh, base it uh, like a top-down system. They were the head of it, and they ran it, whereas Washington had a, a different technique. And if you could talk about that real quick. Yes. I think one of the most important things was that the uh, the British commanders were not very good at, at listening to, to others. Uh, but Washington was a very good listener, uh, and I think that may have made – all the difference. That was one of the great strengths of his leadership, uh, both in the army and then as president uh, in, the, in, in the early republic. And he began to listen and encourage his other, uh, his other officers to do the same. And they also, at the same time, reorganized their councils of war. This was the way every army in the 18th century had ran with, through councils of war. And in the British army, they, uh, the officer in command, the general in command, would announce uh, at the beginning of the council what he intended to do, and then they would talk about how, how to do it. Washington began to, uh, to work differently. He would propose a problem and invite other people to uh, weigh in on, that, on all of that. In, these were open bodies. Of civilians were invited to join. People in New Jersey who knew the countryside were asked to sit in. And, uh, and Washington listened, and he learned. And, from in that open way. Everybody knew who was in command of, of, of the Continental Army. Washington had great command presence, but it chose him to it, it pleased him to command in this open way of listening to others. And then he would also work at bringing these men together by a kind of consensus. It was really quite an extraordinary thing. He invented a new style of leadership for these very autonomous American soldiers. Uh, who were used to managing their own affairs? Right. So you have the you have the American forces being forced out of New Jersey. They've managed to get across the Delaware to keep that between 
them and uh, the British regular forces. And, and when they did, they went up and down the Delaware for uh, over 100 miles, and they took all the rest of the boats and everything else so that nobody could follow them easily. Now, supposedly, uh, the Cornwallis had brought shipbuilding materials with him, or at least I think that's what Washington thought. But it was so late in the game for the, the season of battle that instead of pushing on, uh, they set up a, a series, uh, a system of outposts. And then Washington finally decided that he, he did, he had to do something to keep in the game and decided to fight and, uh, and brought the folks over. Now, yeah, uh, what, what Washington lived in fear of just then was that, was that the river would freeze, uh, the Delaware River. And above Trenton, it, it, that could have happened. Uh, and he worried that the British, uh, even though they had no boats, could cross the river on the ice. And if they did that, then they could see, uh, seize what was the capital of the American states, which was Philadelphia. Uh, and right. he thought and, that that <clears throat> Go and ahead. They, and Philadelphia at the time, they, they were pretty much figuring that this was a done deal too, right? Because they went ahead, the Continental Congress went ahead and packed up and skedaddled. That's right. And to fled fled to Baltimore, and uh, <laughs> it, 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 where they were not happy to be. It was a new town, and it, it lacked the it lacked the bright lights and amenities of Philadelphia. Uh, and and, and uh, not everybody there was ready to wait on them hand and foot. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and then and, and something else that was going on at the same time was that uh, Washington had a, a journalist with him who uh, who was, as we would say in the Iraq War, was embedded in the Continental Army. And it was Thomas Paine. And uh, uh, Paine uh, retreated with the army across New Jersey and then across the Delaware uh, to, to Pennsylvania. And as he went, he began to think that the game was pretty near up. And so he sat down at, the, at a campfire uh, and with scraps of paper and a quill pen. He wrote another pamphlet like Common Sense, but this one was called The American Crisis. And it was about the times that try men's souls. And then he, he went to Philadelphia, and he couldn't find a printer. To uh, they, They'd also left town as well. But finally he turned up one, uh, and this pamphlet uh, began to spread. Um, uh, and as it did, uh, this was uh, – the American army was a literate army. It was uh, – these men could read and write. It was one of the first armies that was that was that was literate that way. Literate, right? And they were reading the work of the man who they called the common sense man, Tom Paine, who was strongly supported by Washington. Later, after the French Revolution, they'd move apart, and, and, and uh, but they were working together here. And it's interesting to watch this Philadelphia uh, a, a, a gentleman uh, working with a very rough. Uh, uh, ink-stained journalist uh, 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 together to support what they both called the cause. And, and it cannot be uh, belittled how much, how important, what an impact it made that uh, Thomas Paine wrote that particular uh, pamphlet. Now, I know that, uh, that, that the pamphlet went on, it continued to expand, but the first part with the opening lines that everybody recognizes, these are the times that Tryman sold. That it had the cadence of a drumbeat. That, that exactly. His, his, his prose. What, what an he was changing the. He, go ahead. I'm just saying that, that you can't. That that there was an intricate ballet almost of all of these things that came together 
You had the occupation and the changing situation in New Jersey. You had the, the continuing forage wars, putting pressure on the troops, and the engagements were nonstop. And you had the, the pressure on Washington to do something, and you have the, uh, the, the literature put out by Thomas Paine that was read uh, all across the colonies, uh, this is all happening at once, leading up to the first Battle of Trenton. Yep, and then they were doing a couple of other things as well. They were desperately short of supplies, uh, uh, shoes in particular, other things. And Washington um, had another relationship with Robert Morris, a merchant in Philadelphia. And uh, they were out of uh, out of hard coin that that they needed to buy their supplies. And Morris knew a, a wealthy Quaker who'd been somewhat on the fence and uh, had buried a large part of his gold in his garden. And he persuaded the Quaker to dig it up and lend it to the American cause. And that was done. And uh, so Washington was able to uh, – they were, they were able to to uh, to restore the logistical uh, base of the army at this same uh, critical uh, moment. And then the other thing they did, they had to work out some tactical uh, 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 changes in the way the army uh, 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 operated in the field. And the problem was how these uh, American citizen soldiers could stand in open battle against uh, some of the most highly professional regulars in the world at that time, and that was not only the British, but also the Hessians were very good soldiers. And they were up against the first team, two of the first teams. And so they began to work out a new solution, which was to use a large part of the artillery that the Americans had uh, uh, much of. They were able to get uh, uh, the field pieces, uh, which they could uh, adapt from the cannon that were used aboard American merchant vessels. Uh, and uh, they began to use artillery as an assault weapon, and they uh, they they put it very uh, very much on at the uh, worked it in integrating it with with infantry units, uh, and they had much more field artillery than the Hessians and the British combined in these operations. And uh, this was not a primitive operation. It was and the man who led that side of it was Henry Knox, who was a, a Boston bookseller, taught himself about these things from the books in his shop, uh, and uh, improvised uh, an artillery force that was highly effective in, in the events that followed. What they were doing was looking for a way of seizing the initiative uh, in, in, the, in, in, in these engagements, uh, taking control of the tempo of war. Uh, and uh, uh, that's what happened uh, in this campaign. Right, and I've talked to the folks uh, before on the show about uh, Henry Knox, and uh, and he, to me, is one of the absolute heroes. But then you look at you look at the trio, which I I call the uh, the, the winning trio there of Washington, Green, and Knox, and. And it is uh, – I'm not sure without that, without that group, I'm not sure what, how well we would have done either. But Knox especially, because the first thing he does is during the Siege of Boston is he goes and he gets the, the artillery uh, from Saratoga and brings it back to Boston in order to threaten the British with it. And, 
And most folks, I, I don't think anybody has a, really a good idea of how, uh, how difficult a tax this was, and yet he accomplished it. And we're going to see in just a minute, you're, you'll keep talking about it, uh, the fact that the, uh, the Americans used their artillery in a new way, as a, in, a, in an aggressive fashion, which helped them uh, at all of the battles, at the Battle of the First and Second Battle of Trenton and at the Battle of Princeton, how they used the artillery in an aggressive fashion in order to allow them to be successful. All right, so and then the, when you look at the, the painting of uh, the, the, most, uh, uh, the most familiar painting we have of Washington crossing the Delaware in that little rowboat, well, we know, or most people will know, that that's not how it actually occurred. There was no little rowboat. They were using the, the large uh, Durham boats. They carried uh, quite a few folks over, but the river was filled with huge chunks of ice and it wasn't it, it wasn't a hundred yards across it was, there was a great distance that they had to cross under a a heavy current and ice chunks big enough to uh, to almost to crush the boats right yeah the river was about 800 feet uh, broad at that point and then further south it was it, it opened up into an estuary below the falls at trenton uh washington crossed above the falls and uh, below the falls, uh, it was even more difficult. And Washington, once he decided to to, uh, to uh, make this attack on Trenton, threw everything he had into the operation, and he decided that he would order his uh, his forces to cross the Delaware River at four points that ranged from about uh, 10 miles north of Trenton down to about 30 miles south of, of Trenton, uh, uh, near uh, around Philadelphia. And... Uh, and he did that, uh, sent the orders, but the ice conditions were so bad, particularly along the edge of the river, that three out of four of those crossings failed. And uh, only one, with about 2,400 men, succeeded uh, the, uh, north, north of, of, of the town, which was the one that was led by Washington himself. The entire operation almost failed because of the, of the weather conditions and the conditions on, on, on the river. Right. And one other thing I'd like you to talk about is the uh is back to once it, once they begin the attack and this wasn't he wasn't just bringing men across he was bringing horses and artillery and uh and all of his supplies that he needed across too and they're doing this in the middle of a thunderstorm in freezing weather with guys that don't have winter clothes they haven't eaten well and they're using uh uh muskets that have to be loaded with loose powder and they're doing this in the rain and when they're getting ready to attack Trenton, you know, there's a, like I said earlier, we were talking about how the uh, because of the surprise that they thought that a lot of people said it was because the Hessians were drunk. But what actually happened was there was a revenge attack on Trenton by one of his other commanders, and uh, at, supposedly there had been a warning to uh, Rawl that there was going to be an attack, and they were talking about Washington's attack. But just by coincidence, there was a revenge attack by one of uh, the other smaller unit commanders out in the field earlier that night, and uh, and maybe that added to the success also. Yes, I, Washington had, had had been very careful to maintain secrecy for the operation. So most of his, the army did not know about the 
the main lines of the plan until they actually um, were committed to it. And in that early period, but just before the crossing, uh, one of his Virginia regiments had lost a man who'd been killed by the Hessians on a on the river, and they decided, not knowing Washington's larger scheme, uh, to attack Hesha, the Hessians themselves, and it was to uh, uh, take a life for a life. And that's what they did, much to the fury of George Washington when he found out, because he thought they had given the game away. But ironically, uh, they allowed him to get tactical surprise, because the British thought that that earlier attack was the attack they had been told was coming. And uh, uh, it was another one of these. It was uh, uh, the, well, they, they, these men uh, uh, believed in providence, and they thought that providence was on their side uh, in these uh, in these uh, in, in these incredible reversals of, of fortune. One might also say about the condition of, the, of Washington's infantry that a good many of these men had, had just joined his army when he was concentrating the, all the, of the various continental forces. He had ordered them to march south from the northern frontier, and they had been marching for the better part of a week. Uh, they were doing that in weather that was even colder than it was on Christmas night, uh, and they had, they had to walk hundreds of miles, march hundreds of miles. Uh, their shoes fell apart. Uh, they were many of them were were very ill from disease, from exposure. Uh, the bloody footprints in the snow are no myth. We have descriptions, eyewitness accounts of of that, and, and, and these men were really on the edge of what uh, what Washington what, uh, the, on the edge of possibility here. They were they were uh, just about to done in, and yet they right. rallied uh, to to the event and to the and to their leaders. Right, and you you have this this battle is getting ready to occur. The the troops are malnourished, without the proper clothing. Without shoes, without you know, without uh, any pay, and a great deal of his army is about to reach the uh, expiration date of their enlistments, which is January. That's 1st. right. It would it would end at the end of the year. And uh, but one thing was said about these men who, when they were observed later by their captors, that is, they were they, the, the army was dressed in rags, but their their weapons were kept in immaculate condition. Exactly. Uh, they, yeah, uh, that's and, the sign of yeah, a rifleman. Yes, that's right. <laughs> well, so they exactly make the attack, right. and uh, and like you said, the the uh, I, I just think it's amazing how the the, the little parts, the little details, uh, added up to this complete surprise. And there's actually a, a book I read recently. I don't know if you've read it or not. I believe it's called. Uh, 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 I can't think of it. Just a second. It was just on my tongue. I'll think of it in a minute. Anyway, uh, they make the attack, and uh, if you can describe the uh, how the battle started, and then how the how the battle worked itself out. The well, they were late. Uh, uh, they were late getting across the river, uh, and, and it, uh, it which uh, it was so late because of the ice on the river. Uh, getting the guns across, uh, that is the artillery, uh, was a uh, was uh, w- was a major part of the problem. But they were so late that Washington um, uh, suddenly realized at, at about 2:30 in the morning or three o'clock, when they were still crossing the river, uh, that they would be attacking Trenton in daylight. 
uh, and he thought that could be a disaster. He really meant to attack under cover of, of, of darkness. He, he, he sat on the edge of, of the crossing uh, watching his men struggle with the, the guns in particular, wondering if he should call it off. And then he decided that, no, it would be more difficult to go back, given the way the river was, than to go forward. So they kept on, and they had a... Of the, the march was as difficult as the crossing of the river. They had to cross a deep ravine along the the, the, the route that they took to Trenton. Uh, it was over a over a rushing uh, stream called Jacobs Creek, uh, and and they, with great difficulty they got guns o- over that that stream uh, and kept moving to a little hamlet about halfway on the way to Trenton. And there they stopped, and Washington ordered all of his officers to get out their timepieces. This was long before wristwatches, but, but the, uh, the senior officers had, uh, had pocket watches. And they synchronized their watches, their, 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 their pocket watches. And I think that's one of the earliest examples of that sort of uh, time discipline. Right. And then they split and approached the town uh, Trenton was mostly laid out on a on a on a rising uh, a set of rising streets that went from from the Delaware River up onto high ground, and they they uh, uh, Washington's orders were to attack both ends of the town at once, and they marched on different roads. The army divided into two parts, and with their synchronized watches, they attacked within about two minutes of each other, uh, and they also as they approached. Uh, the town suddenly the this huge northeast nor, nor'easter a winter storm reached a kind of climax. These were bands of rain, snow, uh, hail. Washington spoke of the hail and sleet, and uh, there was a very dense um, band of, uh, of of heavy weather just as they approached the town. And so once again, by providence, they got tactical surprise, and the Hessians. Um, were, uh, were were were, uh, were caught uh, a little bit off guard. They they uh, uh, they had to, to uh, rally uh, as the as the attack uh, rolled in uh, and, and and caught them uh, on on both ends. Right. And now we can add in uh, General Knox. Well, he, at the time he was Colonel Knox, but he received uh, his generalship because of his actual of his logistical. Uh, uh, the way he ran, getting everything over there. But at the time he was Colonel Knox, about how he turned. The, I, I think he 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 was an important pivotal uh, person with his artillery. Yes, there right. In yeah. And they uh, so they the infantry attacked from both ends, and with the with the uh, the with the guns forward, with the artillery uh, uh, in in the very in, on the front edge of, of of these assaults. And then as they did so. Washington, who was also very careful with the lives of his men, ordered them uh, to find uh, cover in the in the in the houses uh, along the edge of the town, and and there they could fire on the Hessians who turned out of their of their houses and were uh, uh, falling into formation in the streets. And uh, so the Americans were firing from from uh, from from cover. The Hessians were were in 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 were very exposed. And the result was a very one-sided uh, 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 battle. The, the Americans lost very few men there. This Washington, this was a very bold uh, attack, but he was also very prudent with the lives of his men. And uh, that, was a, that was something that ran all through the, the, the revolution. It was a, another part of the 
Dr. Fisher? Okay. Uh, I don't know if we lost if we lost him or if we just lost if we lost all of the uh, the audio. Uh, if you guys can hear me, post into the the chat that you can still hear me too. Guys, if you can, uh, if you can hear me, then post it in the chat room so I'll know. Uh, what should I do? You want me to hang up? You want you call me, or uh, what's the best way? Uh, let me just. Uh, I'm waiting to hear from these guys to see if uh, if we have lost. Uh, if for some something reason else. the radio station has uh, goofed us up or something, I mean, yeah, have we gone see. over our time? We have considerably, haven't we? Oh no, 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 no. We're we're doing fine. Okay, they say we're both back, uh, Doctor Fisher. Okay. All right. So what we were talking about, we said that uh, the the Hessians were uh, they were pot, they were uh, coming out of their buildings and they were forming up in the street in front of their buildings, but uh, Colonel Knox had set up the artillery batteries to cover, to shoot down the street, and he immediately began pounding them with grape shot, and uh, he just he, he uh, described it as clearing the streets in the twinkle of an eye. Yes, it was, he caught them in uh, Anvilad. They, uh, they, uh, they were firing down, down the streets. It was Alexander Hamilton who was in command of... Uh, of a battery at the top of the of top of the uh, of, of the town, uh, and uh, there was a grape shot and round shot that, that, that it was. It, it, they said it was almost like bowling, uh, and it it really uh, inflicted heavy uh, losses on the Hessians. Right, and you mentioned earlier. Well, let's let's finish up with the battle. They've they've cleared the streets. They've got uh, uh, Washington and the other commanders have their troops uh, now going house to house. And a lot of it's hand-to-hand, and there's uh, several fights. I mean, there's multiple fights going on everywhere. And then how does the battle finish up? Because it was a very short battle. It didn't last very long. The Hessians uh, did respond by uh, a counterattack. They – uh, these again. These were uh, these were good soldiers, and and uh, uh, the, uh, the the a, a German doctrine in the 18th century, like uh, in the 20th, stressed the importance of counterattack, and they counterattacked Washington twice uh, in in just a few minutes, and each time they took very heavy uh, uh, casualties. And uh, uh, the, their uh, uh, their commander, Colonel Rawl, who was uh, also very able, uh, was uh, was mortally wounded. Uh, they uh, retreated a little bit to the east of the town. About 500 were able to get out of the town, 
but 900 were caught uh, uh, in the converging uh, uh, forces, uh, American forces, and uh, were compelled to surrender. Right. And one of the things that I think is very uh, surprising to me and very interesting about this battle is that uh, with such a, uh, a large amount of forces uh, meeting each other and engaging, there were no uh, American forces that were killed in action during the battle. There were several wounded, but yeah. the, only, the only ones that were killed or the only ones that died were two soldiers that froze to death on the march into town. Yes, there may have been. Uh, Washington said there were one or two killed, in addition to those men who were uh, who, 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 who were died of exposure on the road, uh, and there were uh, others who were severely wounded. One of them was uh, a lieutenant of infantry in a Virginia regiment. It, it was James Monroe, the future fifth president of the United States, uh, and he was nearly uh, uh, killed by. Uh, 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 he, uh, he was hit. I think it was. It must have been by a musket ball that uh, that severed one of his uh, arteries. And he just he'd just been joined by a New Jersey doctor as a volunteer who attached himself uh, to Monroe's uh, infantry company. And that doctor saved Monroe's life, and um, he survived, but only after a long convalescence uh, after after the battle. Uh, and there were others who were wounded as well. We don't know the full count because in the 18th century, only men who were so severely wounded um, uh, that they were uh, that they were really in danger of their lives uh, were counted uh, on the casualty list. So right. uh, probably they understate the uh, the uh, the losses. But the Americans have, have even if when we allow for that, uh, uh, have suffered very few casualties. Uh, particularly compared to the to the Hessians, which to me is just absolutely amazing. Because you look at what's going on, you look at the fighting and the number of folks, and you're thinking, now hold on, there's got to be, there's no way this many people fight and somebody doesn't get killed immediately. And yet that's what happened. And even if, as you say, the, uh, and I'm sure that this happened, that you can't, you don't get an accurate count because it's very hard back then. There was. Uh, first of all, it's very hard to just find any records at all, let alone an accurate system of reporting casualties. That's right. But, but the the fact that such a fantastic uh, victory was made uh, at such a low loss of life to me is just amazing. And then once they'd won, they had to get everybody back uh, across the Delaware. And people don't yes, think about was, that, uh... but now they've got to cross back. And they've got to bring 900 prisoners and all the equipment with back with them. That's right. And, uh, and uh, there was uh, this was a raid, and there were uh, large British forces not very far away. The uh, 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 more men than Washington had, uh, uh, very uh, very near to Trenton, the, uh, a, a considerable force was in Princeton, which was only nine miles away. Uh, and Washington knew he had to act quickly, and. Uh, uh, it was compounded by the, the problem was compounded by the fact that the Hessians were not drunk uh, on Christmas night. The next day, the Americans, after the battle, discovered in the taverns in Trenton a lot of uh, of liquor in the, in the basement, and it was the American <laughs> army that got drunk. Right. Uh, and uh, Washington uh, describes this himself. And uh, the question was, how can he uh, get uh, 
2,400 men plus 900 Hessians, and the Americans uh, are feeling no pain uh, from uh, from what they found in the taverns, and he had to get them in in, in the boats and and back again. While the while the, the the river conditions were even worse, and 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 yet they managed to do that and uh, brought everybody away. And uh, the Hessians didn't know what to expect. They had treated American captives very cruelly had put some of them to the sword uh, when they captured them in earlier engagements. Uh, and Washington could have done the same to them uh, this time, but instead he gave orders, uh, working with members of the Continental Congress, that, that they would enforce what they called the policy of humanity. They would, uh, they would uh, 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 protect, they would recognize the rights of their Hessian prisoners uh, to life itself, and, and they did that and gave them decent treatment in captivity, much to the amazement of the Hessians. And the word uh, yeah, of this I'm sure, they, I'm sure they expected to be treated as they had been treating the American uh They did. We, we have a lot of Hessian accounts. Of, 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 we have more Hessian accounts than we have um, uh, the American accounts. And uh, the word began to get around. And what, what Washington and the Army did was to link the values of the of the revolution to the conduct of the war, uh, and uh, people uh, began to notice that as it spread, and it, it gave the Americans a kind of moral advantage in the war uh, that was very important to its outcome, and uh, right. and all of that happened not by accident, but it happened by a deliberate decision, and the central decision maker was 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 George Washington. Right, and I don't think it was a small advantage either, because once the word got around, and you think of that being in this time that people don't hear, but they do, because they let the folks write letters back. They would write letters back to their to their friends, uh, to their family members, etc., and they would tell about how they were treated. So now the the uh, Hessians and the British regulars knew that they weren't going to be beaten or starved, uh, at least on purpose, if they were made prisoners, and this contributed all through the war to, uh, I think, a greater number of desertions among uh, the British regulars and the Hessians uh, to uh, the Americans. I think Americans. that's right. And also, at the same time, the Americans had uh, made a practice of uh, sending a fast ship, a fast sailing ship, with the news of these events to Europe. And we had uh, a new man in in uh, in Paris in December of 1776, and uh, that was Benjamin Franklin, and he began to write pamphlets and other accounts that spread the news of all of this, and it traveled uh, from one printing press to another uh, in Europe, and the word got around. It spread to, to London, uh, and it had an impact on, on the, the British leaders in the war. Uh, they lost a kind of moral advantage, and in some ways, they never got it back again. And it's interesting that uh, after the after the, the war, uh, George III went mad, uh, and one form of his madness was that he imagined that he was George Washington. Uh, that is, George Washington got had so got the moral advantage over George III, partly because of the way that Washington led the the the, the, uh, the American forces. That I think it was a major factor in the outcome of the of the revolution. Exactly, because they kept the they kept the moral high ground, and they did that. I think they did that throughout uh, the battles, and and it was very uh, it was enforced. 
to a great degree. Now, now I know that there were uh, that there was uh, bad stuff that went on. Anytime you have, especially a civil war, it's a nasty, nasty war. Anytime yeah, there's there was a civil a, there, war, that was uh, that was uh, it got really uh, uh, bad in the uh, in the, the southern campaigns. Which were which, which were very much of a civil war of uh, of family against family and brother against brother and uh, that 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 got that got ugly and uh, but nevertheless uh, Washington himself uh, and the officers of the Continental Army uh, uh, took the high ground and uh, it happened even after the Battle of Calpins when the Americans took a lot of prisoners from Tarleton's Legion, who were, they, if anybody was hated by the American forces, it was Tarleton. Uh, and afterward, uh, Daniel Morgan, who was the victor at Cowpens, sent a letter to Green and then on to Washington that said, when we captured the Tarleton's men, we treated them with humanity. We weren't even rude to them, he says. Uh, and uh, it's interesting to see how they worked at that. And we can also see other people, John Adams, Samuel Adams, Samuel Adams, who knew these things well from his political career, said he said to to one of the Washington family, he said, he learned something in the politics of Boston town meetings. He said, put your enemy in the wrong and keep him there. A yes. good maxim in politics as well as war. And well, you and that's I were what the Americans tried to oh, go do. Ahead, go ahead. That, 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 that finishes the thought there. So, but well, uh, you and I, I were speaking that's... last time about uh, we were t- we were speaking about April nineteenth, and one of the things that I that I thought was that was done so correctly there was all of the troops were under the orders of do not fire unless fired upon, and they yes. held to that. And I think I told you that I was at uh, the North Bridge and I was listening to the uh, the spiel from the uh, the park uh, rangers there, and they were discussing the the uh, return of the troops from uh, Barrett's farm, and the way they described it, they said that the, after the uh, the initial engagement, the colonial forces were so they were wandering around confused. And that allowed uh, the three companies to to march by them uh, without them being fired upon because the uh, colonial forces were in confusion at that point. And uh, from everything I've read in your book and everywhere else, that that was not the case at all. They were still they were ready to fight when the when the three companies came back, but they were still operating under the orders of do not fire unless fired upon because that kept them in the moral right. Yes, that's right. And when uh, Paul Revere uh, on, on 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 Lexington Green, when he um, crossed Lexington Green, passing through the uh, the American uh, militia who uh, who uh, turned out there, he heard Captain Parker, who was their their commander, telling his men. He said, "Do not fire, lest fired upon." And uh, that was uh, the word that was spread all through the uh, the New England. Um, uh, militia companies in 1775, and then that same attitude appeared in 1776 and 1777 uh, in the Continental Army. Then there'll be other mem- other movements when the when uh, when we would uh, uh, when, when when all of that when tempers uh, when feelings grew so high that uh, that we would uh, we we uh, fall away from that idea, but get it back again, and and people kept struggling to uh, to. To make it good, I think also they gave us an example 
um, that's always relevant uh, in, in our time uh, as it was in theirs. Right. And the uh, one of the things that I always find amazing about the uh, – first of all, the, Washington crossed the Delaware, crossing the Delaware happened over and over and over again during this time period. And one of the things I find uh, to me – uh, because now I've grown older and uh, and less willing to jump in icy water in the winter like I used to do when I was with a long-range recon patrol in my, my teens, uh, is the fact that these guys crossing the river, uh, you have accounts from the Hessians who are talking about when they were being ferried back across as prisoners that, uh, a lot of them thought they were going to die in the river, and at one point they got uh, hung up on some ice, and they said, we've got to get out of here. If we're going to save our lives, we've got to get out of the boat. And they jumped out and went into the water chest deep and waded in. And a lot of the uh, American forces did the same thing on the way over and on the way back. So here they are in the middle of winter, in the middle of a snowstorm and everything else. They've jumped in this icy water, and and then they went on to fight. Uh, and yeah. They're not going back to a warm barracks. They're 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 going to be staying outside that night. Now they built up some fires, and some of the guys found warmth in uh, by going into people's people's homes and stuff. But if you can just imagine uh, getting ready to go into battle, and you, you you fall through a hole in the ice, get back out, and you go, okay, let's go, let's continue on, let's go fight this fight. I'm going to march, uh, you know, ten miles in uh, the winter in soaking wet clothes, and then I'm going to fight. This was a yeah. different, uh, a different attitude and a different time. Yep, it's amazing to to, to see to see what they went through, and how their spirit uh, uh, strengthened them through it. And and it's interesting what happened after after Washington took his men back across the Delaware after after the battle. Another one of his forces finally got across the river further south. And these were Philadelphia Associators. Uh, they were very uh, autonomous guys. When they got across, their officers told them that the, that the the, uh, the operation was finished. They should return um, back across the river to Pennsylvania, and they refused. They said uh, uh, the they they thought that they, they had an opportunity um, to um, strike another blow. And as they did that, uh, the, uh, Washington was having another council award. He got the word as to what, it, what, what was going on. And the American leaders began to follow their men in all of this. They, they decided uh, that one raid, as successful as it was, was not enough to strengthen the cause. People would say it was just a fluke. Uh, and uh, they had to do it again. Uh, and so they planned to make yet another crossing of the Delaware. And that led on as this campaign continued uh, for three months after this crossing. Uh, okay, so and they, they made fought. the successful uh, attack on Trenton, brought back the forces, and brought back the prisoners and all the booty that they had uh, taken. Because I believe they even listed all of the uh, the Hessian band instruments in their booty. And uh, and as you say, he decided that one wasn't enough. That uh, to, to prove this wasn't a fluke, uh, and I believe too, it was to keep keep the army together. If he could get them to cross That's right. the river again, if he could get them to stay just a little bit longer past their enlistments, then maybe he could talk them into staying even past that. So he talked them into to to crossing 
the river again for another battle. Now, tell us about that. Yeah, and and the conditions, the the uh, the winter was it getting the weather. The winter weather was getting even worse. The the uh, it was the second crossing was much colder than the first, uh, and uh, uh, they had major problems. And they got uh, got across again to to Trenton. Uh, at the same time, the British uh, were uh, sending forces from New York and New Brunswick down to Princeton, and then preparing to uh, strike at at Washington as he was preparing to strike at uh, them. And then the, the next day after, after that, on January 1st, uh, they crossed right at the, just at, about at the new year. Uh, and uh, then on uh, January, uh, uh, then the weather changed again, and it got very mild. It was like the January thaw that we have in, uh, in, 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 the, in New England and other places. And, uh, and as that happened, uh, the roads that had been frozen now thawed, and they and and they went to deep mud, and they described the mud as they marched on these roads, uh, converging on uh, the, the Americans converging on on Trenton, the British converging on Princeton, and they described the mud as half a leg deep. That is, they would go into this mud up to their knees, uh, and trying to to manhandle their guns uh, uh, through the almost impassable roads. Uh, and they managed to, to gather uh, their, their strength yet again, and the result was another Battle of Trenton, followed by the Battle of Princeton. Uh, that uh, These happened on January 2nd and January 3rd, and um, that's another story. Right, and uh, the – well, you say that's another story. You mean the, uh, the second battle? The second battle, and then, and then the Battle of Trent, Princeton, and then after that, the Long Forage War that went on, on – through uh, through February and, and March and even into early April. Well, do you have another? Do you have some time to uh, to guide us through yes, the I, second battle in Princeton? Yes, I do. Um, okay, great. Uh, should, should we talk about that? We should say that first of all, there were uh, there was a, uh, there was yet another engagement or a set of engagements uh, in which uh, Cornwallis, who was had, he was just about to. to uh, Return to uh, he was going to, home to, Brit- to Britain. He had already sent his luggage aboard a British ship. They, he thought the fighting was over for the winter, uh, and he was the most able field commander that the British had. And Howe ordered him, the commander chief, Howe ordered uh, Cornwallis to go instantly to, to Princeton to take take control of the situation and to deal with 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 Washington's army and. Uh, uh, and Washington was now, with his intelligence networks, was pretty well informed about what the British were doing, and he thought that what he had to do was to delay uh, uh, Cornwallis's advance from Princeton. That was about nine or ten miles, depending on how you count, uh, from C- Princeton down to Trenton. And he fought another engagement. This was on January uh, on January second, 1777, uh, and it was a fighting retreat. Uh, fighting withdrawal, uh, in which uh, Washington's units would def- pick up a, a defensible uh, position along the road. Uh, they'd force Cornwallis to deploy his his marching columns into in, in, into lines and to assault the Americans, and then they'd they'd retreat, move again, and they kept doing this again and again, and slowed Cornwallis's advance um, for most of that day. And while that was going on. Washington sent others of his men to fortify a hill just south of Trenton. It was across a creek called Assunpink Creek. 
And this was to prepare. What he wanted to do was to do what had been done at Bunker Hill. He, it was uh, on, on the other side of Assunpink Creek. There was rising ground. And so he ordered his men to prepare fixed positions there in about four lines uh, with his artillery in place. Uh, and uh, then there were just a few crossing points, uh, 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 particularly one bridge uh, over, over Assunpink Creek. Right. And as finally Cornwallis drove the American um, delaying the, the, these Americans out of, through that, that, that fighting retreat that the Americans were staging, they, he finally came up against uh, Washington uh, at Assunpink Creek and drove his assault units, Cornwallis did, over the over the, the bridge, trying to get to Washington. These were the elite of the British Army, their light infantry, their grenadiers, uh, the, some of the best of the Hessian troops. And they were defeated. They said that the, the bridge and the approaches to the bridge were running red with blood from the, the, the losses of the British uh, troops were uh, t- uh, taking, uh, and uh, and the, the the British were defeated. So wa- here Washington had fought three engagements. Uh, one was a raid at Trenton, uh, then was the retreat, the long slow retreat uh, that that the fighting withdrawal, which a very difficult military operation, uh, which uh, he had been able to sustain, and then he fought another battle from a fixed position on the other side of Assunpink, and he won every one of those engagements. And then a night fell, uh, uh, the, both armies uh, went to ground, uh, the weather turned bitter, bitter cold, uh, and Washington met with his council who were wondering what next with these British troops. There were no Hessians now here, this was all British on the other side, but wondering what would the next day hold as the British were beginning to bring their, the full force of their army to bear on Washington's troops. Right, and once again, uh, I want to remind folks that uh, Knox's artillery, his placement and the crews manning them, uh, gave the uh, American forces, they fought the British to the standstill there at Assunpink Creek, and gave them then the ability for what happened next. If they wouldn't have done that, it's not that uh, Washington's forces may have been defeated. Now, they, a lot of people say they could have, but he could have fought, he could have fought another retrograde action uh, back down the river and then cross back over. But this allowed, this set up what was to happen next. So yeah. Knox's use of the artillery was, was monumental because he destroyed the attacking units of the British regulars as they tried to cross the bridge to assault the American forces. I think that's right. And then, uh, and then, in the in the night, uh, Washington called another council of war, and uh, these officers came together. The question was, what next? Uh, uh, and Washington posed the problem. Uh, he didn't proclaim the solution. At the same time, Cornwallis was holding a council of war on the other side of Assunpink Creek, and he said, um, "We bagged the fox. So we'll we'll kill him in the morning." Uh, and um, one of his officers uh, told him, he said, my lord, uh, they may not be there in the morning. Uh, and Cornwallis didn't want to hear it. He wasn't listening. Uh, and uh, they, the British prepared to follow the, the, uh, the orders that, that Cornwallis had already given without consulting anybody else. But Washington began to consult many people in the Council of War. He brought in uh, civilians who knew the ground around, uh, around Trenton. 
And uh, one of these uh, uh, civilians was probably an undergraduate at Princeton College there. there. And he said uh, there was a small British force at Princeton, and there were back roads that led from the position they were in up to the backside of Princeton. And so uh, they talked about it, studied the maps, and decided that they could make a night march. This was after they'd been marching for three days in those terrible conditions, first cold, then the thaw. Now it was getting very cold again. Uh, and they, 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 uh, uh, Washington asked his men to make a night march at midnight uh, uh, from, uh, from Assunpink Creek up to uh, Princeton. And that's what they uh, did. Uh, and uh, it was uh, it's just an astounding thing, first of all, to ask of these men who were, must have been past the point of exhaustion uh, to do this after such hard campaigning in, in this bitter weather. Right. In the middle of winter, they've crossed yeah. the river back and forth, back and forth. They've been soaked over and over. Uh, they've gone without sleep. They've marched through the night uh, several times. They don't have enough food, no winter clothing, and yet they just kept fighting. They kept fighting. So it's just extraordinary that, uh, first of all, that, uh, that this uh, – this new plan was made, and then again, that the army would could do what Washington was asking of them. Right, and so, so they've got it set up. Uh, Cornwallis has decided that they'll bag the fox in the morning. Now, I believe supposedly one of his generals said, uh, "If uh, Washington's half the man we think he is, he won't be there in the morning." That's and right. An officer named Erskine and. And uh, but uh, th- th- these were two different systems of command on the British and the American side, and this more open system uh, turned out uh, to be much more effective uh, than a closed system of command. Right, and that's what happened. So uh, Washington left the crew to uh, to bang the picks and shovels and and keep a fire up. Uh, that's right. And then he took off. They took off for Princeton. And yep. uh, and so so set the Battle of Princeton up now. And uh, so these uh, Washington, as they pulled out, it was very difficult for to get these men in, in uh, out of uh, out of their entrenchments and uh, formed up on the road. And as they were doing that, suddenly the word spread amongst uh, some of the militia there that the British were attacking, and the militia panicked. A, a good part of Washington's army fled south. Uh, down the down the the, the, the Delaware River to, to Burlington, uh, New, New Jersey, and uh, so Washington was uh, now moving, uh, getting uh, could only get uh, about maybe a half to a th- two thirds of his army of the original force uh, that he set off with. Uh, 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 that's right, into um, uh, in, into um, uh, uh, into this next operation, and they marched through the night, and it was just at the break of day that they were approaching uh, Princeton. Um, and as they did so, they stopped, and they had another council of war and made plans that they would attack Princeton from both sides and try to do there to the British brigade that was 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 in, in place in, 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 in Princeton as they had done to the Hessian brigade that was in uh, Trenton. And as they be, made their uh, 
their these uh, dispositions uh, uh, splitting into, into two wings um, uh, to take the town of Princeton from both sides. Uh, they, and they started to march. Suddenly they saw in the distance a British force coming toward them, and they hadn't expected to see that. <laughs> and the result was yet another battle on open uh, farmland uh, just uh, south of southwest of, of, of Princeton. And uh, the, the, the Washington had the advantage of numbers, but the, both sides were taken by surprise. It was what soldiers call a meeting engagement. Um, neither had expected it to happen. Uh, and they ran into each other on this open ground. And at first, the British, who were uh, highly professional troops and uh, uh, responded very quickly, and though, though they were outnumbered by Washington, they attacked with extraordinary force. And they broke the, uh, uh, several other regiments in Washington's army. And then he rode onto the field, rallied uh, the rest of his army, put them into, into uh, a line, and led them forward. Uh, and they, uh, they flanked um, the, the British, smaller British force on both sides uh, in, in the day. The, the ground had, had flash frozen in that, on that night before. It was covered with a glaze of ice. And this was a very hard, hard fight in the battle. And it was said that the blood ran uh, in, in rivulets on the, on the surface of the frozen ground. They'd never seen anything quite like that uh, before. And uh, the, the Americans uh, then pushed forward and captured uh, um, the rest of the, of the British force uh, at uh, Nassau Hall, which was the building that housed the college in, right. in, in Princeton. Right, and then you mentioned then, that uh, Washington went forward and rallied the troops, and I think this is, is a very impart, important part of the battle because they were, they had a momentary, uh, a moment when the battle was starting to waver, and he rode out right into the middle of the fray. He put himself right uh, as much in harm's way as you can imagine, and I think too that he was so, when when they started when they did turn and took off. And he started chasing them, and he yelled out, it's a fine fox chase, my boys. I think that yep. uh, he was so mad over, uh, if you remember the Battle of Harlem Heights, the regulars started blowing the, the foxhounds, uh, the, I mean the foxhorns, uh, and chasing the American troops. And it, he was furious about that, and, I, and he was, I think he was so happy to turn the tables on them. You know, Washington was a was an amazing uh, fox hunter, and uh, yes. for him to have also, his troops chased by the British uh, with uh, playing the uh, the fox chase thing, I think infuriated him. Now was a chance for him to turn the tables, and uh, and he did. Yes, and he was leading these men, his men from the front. On horseback, uh, he did that uh, at the at the uh, first battle of Trenton. Uh, he did it again. At, he was right at the bridge in the second battle of Trenton, and then he did it again on this, these open fields at uh, Princeton. He was only uh, less than a hundred yards from um, from the infantry of the other side, and yet he suffered not a scratch in uh, in these in these engagements. It it was the the men thought it was a miracle. Okay, that's the name of the book. You just said it. <laughs> the name of the book that I was going to tell you about was called Almost a Miracle. And uh, and it goes through the American Revolutionary War. And 
uh, and it focuses on how time after time uh, the things that that should not have happened happened, or the yeah. things, the most logical things that would happen did not happen, uh, in order that uh, that the Americans were victorious. I thought, I thought it was an amazing book. So well, it, it truly, it, it truly it was. But at the same time, it was almost a miracle. It was also the result of plans of. Uh, decisions, uh, choices, uh, it didn't happen by accident. Uh, right. It, it was, it, the, these guys were, um, were, were making it happen. And uh, I think that's one of the most remarkable things. Right. So he, he pushes the, uh, the regulars back. Some of them managed to get away, and then the rest uh, uh, took refuge in Nassau Hall there. And, yeah. uh and Washington brings up the artillery. They fire a couple of rounds into the building, and I'm sure that was enough for the forces there to say, okay, all right, okay, okay, that's it, we're done. And they surrendered. Yep. And he puts these guys on the road, and then now he had a critical decision to make because Washington wanted to do something, and, and, and it was deliberated, and what was that? Well, he wanted to uh, lead his men... Uh, to New Brunswick, which was uh, about, I think it was about 25 miles, 30 miles from 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 Princeton, and there the British had a headquarters, and also a large part of their supplies, and they also had their uh, they had kept a a large quantity of of gold coin uh, that they were, were using to uh, when they decided they better start paying for some of the foraging that they were doing, and uh, Washington hoped he could capture all of that if he could strike very quickly, and so he set his men on the road toward Brunswick, or New Brunswick, as uh, he called it Brunswick, and, but as they did, uh, the men had had it. They, had, they just couldn't go much farther, and Washington was quick to understand that, the, that, uh, that after all of these other engagements, uh, he, he couldn't ask them to to go this to take this next uh, step, and so he led them instead. Uh, instead of going up toward Brunswick, they 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 went northwest uh, through the mountains, the Watchung Mountains that run across New Jersey, uh, to a, a forest town uh, where they could uh, build a winter encampment and um, to disengage for for a moment. But as he did that. The New Jersey militia turned out in uh, numbers that surprised everybody, and they began to attack the British. And this became the Forage War. They started to uh, these uh, many, many small engagements, but the British won most of them. It was continuous uh, fighting. Then Washington sent some of the Continentals down from Morristown, and they joined in as well. And the British took very heavy losses in this period. It was no, none of the engagements uh, were, were got to be major battles, but the sum of it uh, was to uh, was, was to inflict uh, losses that the British were having great difficulty making making good because they were uh, they had thrown everything they had into first the New York campaign, uh, and now they were beginning to be very short on. On supplies and right, uh, and and this caused them. For, at first, they were in good they were in good shape. They they had uh, the bounty of New Jersey to take care of them. But now, once they had once they had turned this over and 
The New Jersey forces were coming out in droves and fighting the forge wars, and, and they couldn't get supplies anymore. Now they were having to be supplied from Europe, and That's that right. was they were, extremely expensive and very dangerous. And they lost most of New Jersey uh, to the American forces, and uh, they, they occupied a few places like Perth Amboy uh, and New Brunswick, um, uh, and we're supplied mainly by the Navy uh, from from New York, and uh, and now they were they were on the defensive, and the initiative had passed uh, to the to 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 the American forces. Well, I think that this uh, this was as you as you wrote in your book a very pivotal moment in yeah. American history because and then the war went on for eight years. Uh, yes. It, and it was it was longer than than the Civil War and our participation in World War II combined, and there were something like twenty four campaigns, and of those twenty four campaigns, half of them were commanded by Washington, Greene, and Lafayette, who who all had the same system of command. The other half, about twelve com, uh, uh, campaigns, were commanded by other officers, who led in a different way, and. Uh, Washington and Green and Lafayette lost many battles, but they won all but two or three of their campaigns, depending on how you count. Right. Uh, and the other, uh, the other officers uh, uh, lost uh, almost uh, all of their ba- uh, campaigns. So the, the, Washington had worked out a system of command that w- w- was successful in nearly half the campaigns of the Revolution, and other officers who commanded differently had almost opposite results that way. And uh, all of this, again, was not an accident. It was, uh, it was a, a system of, uh, of, of leadership uh, that, that these men worked out, not Washington alone, but, but, uh, but others, many others with him. And then Green, well, you, you, can, you can count Knox if you, if you count him after he's promoted, which is after the first yeah. battle of uh, Trenton. But Green and General Knox are the only two generals that end up staying with Washington and with the American Revolutionary War to the end. Well, there were there were others who came in and, and uh, later uh, who became well, I mean, very from important the to Washington. From the beginning to the end. Yeah, that's tr- I think they're, they're, that's that's largely true for general officers. Uh, and there were others who were captured. Uh, then exchange. They they kept coming, uh, kept sort of coming in and out of the of the of, of the campaigns, uh, but they stuck the, the the course. Well, this is an absolutely amazing to me, an amazing moment in American Revolutionary War history. Because and I think it's really important that we should remember not only what they did, but how they did it and why they did it. Because uh, the answers to those questions are, are I think, are urgently important for the choices that we have to make. We're go- we've been going through a very difficult time. Uh, and it's important to remember that others before us have, have faced challenges, and some of them have done it uh, in ways that, that, that can teach us about, uh, about our choices. Well, I tell the folks uh, almost every week that, uh, sometimes people will ask, why do we have history at the apple seeds? Why do we talk about history? Now, they usually don't ask it after we've talked about it because, because they're excited by the history, but before they may ask it. And 
And the the obvious answer is the the cliche answer of uh, those who don't know about their history are doomed to repeat it. And and we see that happen over and over and over again. The people that don't understand what the results of their actions can be, what has happened before, uh, repeat them with the same horrible results. And yep. and the history for us to understand what went on before us, how we got here what decisions were made and what the results of those decisions were is extremely important. And what we're trying to do with the Appleseed Project now is to let people know that, <clears throat> that the, the, the history of our nation, which is a very violent one starting on April 19, 1775, uh, it never needs to be repeated because that was done for us. And then we have an absolutely brilliant set of documents uh, in order to govern the nation that allow us to peacefully change the government and direct the government, whereas on April 19, 1775, they didn't have that. They had no other recourse, but we yep. do, and that's and what we try to tell folks. And I think we could, we could add some, one, one, one thing more to all of that, which is that the future always takes us by surprise. Who could have predicted uh, 9-11? Or the events that followed 9/11, but what happened in, um, in in the American Revolution was that people uh, uh, learned ways of uh, of dealing with events that took them by surprise, and we can learn from how they did that. Not that it'll ever be just the same, um, but there's something about their approach to these problems that is, I think, very important. And on top of that, they created a system in those great documents and in the structure of their institutions. Uh, one of them said that, uh, that the, uh, the American system contains within itself the means of its own improvement. And I think it's really important that we remember that. We have within our hands the possibility of dealing with the problems that we face today uh, within the structure of these institutions. Uh, and um, we, it's important that we don't lose heart, we don't lose hope, uh, we remember what these men did. Absolutely. Now, uh, I want to remind folks that they know you from Paul Revere's ride, and now they know you from Washington's Crossing, but that is just the tip of the iceberg. You, you have a ton of, uh, of fantastic work that you've done, uh, including Albion Seed. Uh, yep. Liberty and Freedom, Champlain's Dream, and yeah, Albion Seed was about the founders of the American colonies and the choices that they made in New England, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and the American backcountry, as they called it in the 18th century. Right, and, and Liberty, why we do things the way we do today? Why we do? Why we have certain things that we do today? You can trace it back to uh, to at least uh, a good part to the four different uh, movements. Yep, I think uh, that's I think that's right. And then we can learn from other countries, other open societies. We can learn from our neighbors to the north. And my uh, my book, uh, Champlain's Dream, is about another extraordinary leader in New France, who um, was able to get on with the Indians. And that's a fascinating story about about uh, the way that he and his a group of Frenchmen invented an idea of humanity. Uh, that put relations with the Indians on a new foundation. It's not what usually happened when, 
when uh, when explorers met met Indians. And I've just got another book coming out this coming week or next week. It's called Fairness and Freedom. It's about the people who founded New Zealand, and they created an idea of fairness. I think they have much to teach the world about fairness, as we have to teach the world about liberty and freedom. And uh, and we can we can learn from each other about these great ideas, or about the idea of humanity that Champlain brought to America. I thought that was an amazing story, and also uh, I want to uh, tell folks about historians' fallacies, which. Uh, which to me it brought up a lot of uh, a lot of interesting thought in my mind of of how uh, how how stuff can be uh, presented or twisted or or turned to to make people think a certain way. So I encourage folks to read that. And then uh, I'd like for you just a second to to comment on. Your book, The Great Wave, Price Revolutions and Revolutions and the Rhythm of History, and tell us where you think we are right now. Well, it's hard to know uh, because we don't know exactly what's coming next, but it's a, it's a, 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 it's a, a history of price movements. I'm not an economist, but I'm interested in, in prices because the records of price movements are more abundant in history than the records of any other thing that we can – Quantify um, uh, uh, that we right. have price lists that go back to Hammurabi. So we've we've got about four thousand years of price lists. And I was interested in how things change, uh, watching how prices change. And we see that they changed in waves, not cycles. Cycles are predictable; they're regular. Um, but uh, and I didn't find cycles, but I found irregular waves uh, of uh, that that brought periods of great economic stress. We've been living through one. Uh, and uh, they they were uh, uh, different in many ways from one another, but they were alike in these sharing these wave-like characteristics, and we can learn from that and learn from how to de- how to deal with them. And uh, <laughs> Washington was living through a period like that as well. One of these great waves uh, reached its climax in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, and it was the background for. For some of these, uh, for some of these things, and Washington learned to deal with that by avoiding ideology, they, uh, which I think once again we can learn from. That is, he uh, he didn't go to either the socialist side or to the very rigid free market libertarian side. What he did was to be very pragmatic and flexible, uh, and that allowed people to be. Uh, to be much more successful in dealing with these uh, problems, and we can learn from that. Uh, too. I'm very much in the center, not to the left, not to the right, in the middle. Right. And it's people in the middle who often have, I think, I think that's first of all where most Americans are. Some of them are center right, some are center left. Um, but uh, when we work it's from that the middle, middle that makes the decisions, though. Well, I think that's I think that's right, and uh, I think that people in the middle have more possibilities. Uh, uh, so that Washington used a free market in many ways. He had to work out the economic base for these campaigns. But he also had used um, uh, the uh, – he organized uh, factories, arsenals uh, that were run by the, by the government. And then he would go back and forth with these, uh, with these plans, not being constrained either way and being very, very flexible, always wanting to keep it a free and open society always respecting the rights of property, uh, in which he deeply believed, 
but uh, I think I think we can learn from these guys in just that way. And I was always amazed too that, and it wasn't just me. It was certainly all of the leaders of Europe were amazed that uh, Washington uh, stayed true to his his promise to Congress. And when the war was over, he went in and he handed uh, uh, he handed the reins back to the government. Yep. No one in Europe expected that because no one in Europe would have done that. And uh, there were bad moments when when the officers uh, in the Continental Army were very frustrated with with the Continental Congress uh, and wanted to turn them out of doors, as they said. Uh, and Washington single-handed uh, met them in uh, in, in a, a public meeting at, in, within the Army's encampment in Newburgh, New York. And many people think that might must that that was his his finest moment in, in in the war, when he persuaded them no stay with the rule of law, there will be no coup in this in this revolution, uh, we 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 won't do that and uh, we took a turn direction and the revolution could very easily have gone the other way. And, All he had uh, to do would have said the word. If he would have said the word, they would have put right. him in. They would have done anything he asked. Yeah, and, that's uh, right. And he didn't. He turned himself. And, he, he stayed true to his word, to his bond, and he went in and uh, and he stepped down. And uh, you could you can read the thoughts from uh, all of the European leaders saying they couldn't believe that because that's not what yeah, would have yeah. happened in any of the European countries. Yeah. And uh, they uh, they they uh, several times uh, said that. Uh, Washington had a, the most important thing that Washington did uh, was was exactly that. Even more important than winning those battles, uh, uh, Frederick the Great uh, said that Trenton and Princeton uh, were, were some of the greatest uh, military victories in the history of war. And I think that's that's true. They were small events, uh, but uh, but they're just extraordinary. And yet even more extraordinary was that these men. And it wasn't just Washington, though he was. First amongst the others, but it was all of them who uh, who believed in putting the country on the basis of the rule of law and uh, and of constitutions. Right, uh, Doctor Fisher, can you give us your uh, your email again so that the folks yes. can follow through on your request to uh, to send you mail? Yes, my email address is d h fisher one word d h f i s c h e r German spelling. D.H. Fisher at Comcast.net. D.H. Fisher at Comcast.net. And I'd really like to hear from you. Uh, drop me a line. Uh, tell me what right. your thoughts are. And then you, are. The, the, the title, once again, of your forthcoming book? Uh, it's called Fairness and Freedom. And if you're interested uh, in, in some of these other ideas, you, you might have a look at uh, Liberty and Freedom. You can, you, it's available in, not only in, in, in bound form, but you can find it as a Nook book and also as a Kindle book uh, as well. Uh, and, um, and I'd also, you might, if you're interested in the idea of humanity, have a look at Champlain's Dream, just been published in French, Le Rêve de Champlain. And uh, Washington's Crossing, if you're interested, is also available in Mandarin Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, you know, you, we, we kind of joke about that, but I'll tell you what, the, uh, the folks from a lot of other countries, they understand the importance of history. They read right. the history books, and they learn from them, and they use that knowledge. 
whereas Americans, I've got to say that a lot of times I'm, I'm fairly disappointed in uh, their knowledge or their desire to learn anything of history about their nation. That's right. We take it for granted, uh, but and we don't realize how special it, it, it uh, how special a blessing it is. And but uh, we've also um, licensed the translation rights for Washington's Crossing in Serbo-Croatian. They've been through very bad times, and they know how important is uh, are things such as the rule of law and 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 and, and the Constitution. Well, when I have folks, I tell you the folks that listen. Uh, that I can tell are listening with both ears at events. You know who they are. They are the uh, they are the Russians. They're the Polish, the Chinese, the Koreans, the folks that are now American citizens, and they show up at Appleseed events, and they listen because they don't take it for granted that tomorrow when they wake up that their rights, their freedoms, and their liberties will be there. They know that uh, that this is a very perilous world that we live in. And that those things have to be safeguarded, and they have direct uh, experience with this. Whereas Americans, uh, they always feel that, uh, that to, tomorrow will be no different than today. Their rights will be yep. there, their freedoms will be there, the electricity will be there, everything will be there just as it was today. Yes. We, uh, we don't know what it's like, most of us in the United States don't know what it's like to lose liberty or to lose freedom. Uh, but many people in many countries know that all too well. Well, Dr. Fisher, I want to thank you so much for for writing the books and for coming on the show and talking to us about them, about uh, Washington's Crossing, and earlier about Paul Revere's ride. and And we love having you on. And it's uh, it's. The best shows that we've had across the years have been when you, we've had you as a guest. So we want to thank you very, very much and wish you the best. And, uh, and we will certainly stay in touch be, uh, via the email that you've left us. God bless you, and we hope that your health continues to, uh, uh, to stay great. And a happy New Year to you, sir. And the same to you, sir. All right. Well, thank you much, Dr. Fisher. And... Uh, and I'm sure you'll be hearing from us again in the future. Uh, I'm sure we'll be asking you to come on again. And uh, until that time, uh, take care and God bless you. And pleasure to, you, to be with you. Bye-bye. All right. Good night. Well, uh, it was fantastic, as always, having him on. And uh, he's just an amazing man. He's so intelligent. He has so much uh, information inside his head that uh, I love speaking with him. And uh, All right, and we've come to the end of the show. I want to thank everybody who called in. I want to thank the call screener. I want to thank uh, uh, all of the folks who, who tuned in tonight. Be sure and tune in this next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We'll have uh, uh, Fred on to talk about uh, the uh, – uh, Apple Seed Year 2012, and what you can expect. And if you have questions, I'm sure he's uh, willing to answer them for you. All right. So uh, uh, until then, God bless you, and uh, Happy New Year to everyone.